0: Christ you are the Lamb of God Father He, you are the one who sent your Son to be a satisfaction for our sin to raise him from the dead and so that we might have life in Christ you having accomplished the work given to you by the Father having laid down your life as an atonement for sin having died having been raised three days later having appeared ...to hundreds over a period of 40 days, having ascended back to the Father, where now you sit, where now you sit at His right hand, and where, from where you will one day return. We acknowledge these glorious truths, and we who are still here on earth long to be with you, and in the meantime, to listen to you, that we might receive instruction. And now, as we come to your word this morning, and consider... The relationship of us as Christians called by your name to the civil authorities, the authorities that you have established, Uh, help us to have understanding and to learn to live, walk, think righteously in this world. Commit these things to you in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, you can make your way. We're going to be bouncing around a lot this morning, but you can make your way to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And again, looking at verses 13 through 17. As we talk about the matter of civil authority, the sovereignty of God in this morning, we mentioned last time, and uh, the Christian's understanding of civil authority, our role in it, and this morning looking a bit more specifically at some key areas of how we as Christians are to think about our responsibility, our rights, and God's instructions to us as living in uh, this fallen world Under the leadership and under the authority of man, essentially, though ultimately under the sovereignty of God. And we, many of us, can be thankful this week that we saw what we would hold to as a mercy of God in establishing a man who is, uh, by all likelihood, going to be an influence that is more consistent with God's principles on the highest court of our land. We'll see how all of that plays out. But nonetheless, we've been made aware of some very deep divides and we as Christians have a particular perspective on that, one that is governed by the light and the truth of God's word. But we have seen within our country great divides, we've seen great hostility, we've seen what in many ways can only be titled as a kind of insanity and a kind of fervor by some political parties in our government and in our nation that cause great concern to us. And so we have to ask ourselves, again, how are we to think about living in this kind of nation and under the rule of man, which is inconsistent, temporary, tenuous, and unpredictable, at sometimes legislating good, and at other times legislating evil, and sometimes a mixture of both, even as we see again in our own nation. And so... While by no means even close to being exhaustive, not even exhaustive in the sense of numbering all of the kinds of categories and questions that could be asked, our goal this morning is to look at this question of how we as Christians are to live as citizens in this world under civil authority and under the authority of man. And one passage that deals with that is what we'll be reading uh, this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13-17. through 17. And so what I want to do this morning is simply read the passage and then swing back around as I said last time and look at four different questions or maybe a better way to say it is four broad principles that we can apply to our thinking and our understanding of the point that Peter is getting to here and that is how we are to submit to human authority. And how do we live righteously under it? So begin reading with me. Actually, begin in verse 11 where he begins this section. And we'll read down to verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2. And then we'll look at these things together. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evil doers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as freemen, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondslaves of God. Honor all people. ...love the brethren, fear God, and honor the King. As we noted when we begin this, just very briefly... ...is that we are by our identity the children of God, beloved. We are by our position in this fallen world, aliens and strangers. And we are to have as a high priority... Our testimony to the gospel in this world by living holy lives, dealing with fleshly lust, by keeping our behavior excellent among those who would criticize us and malign us and say all kinds of false accusations against us... We are, as Christians, identified fundamentally, even in terms of our response to the gospel, those who have submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ and live under his lordship and live under his authority. That submission has, as a first expression here in this context, submission to human authority, which is really submission to Christ. It's his command. He is the one who gave that authority that's over us. He is the one who, by his authority, commands us to live under the authority of ...that He has established. And we are to do right. We are to be known as those who do good. We are to be known as those who are essentially good citizens... ...in the government and the nation in which God has placed us. We are not to be... ...or we are not to rationalize rebellion... ...revolution... ...sinful rejection of that authority... Simply under the excuse that we are free in Christ and we're under no authority but Christ. And therefore use that as some kind of justification for being rebellious citizens. That's the idea of act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but as slaves of God. And this submission goes far beyond mere obedience. It it touches as well on our attitudes of honor and showing honor to the authority that God has established. So then... How then are we to live under this authority? As I mentioned earlier, what I want to do is just take two... I'm going to look at it for the first two points from a negative perspective... ...and then last two from a more positive uh, perspective. And look at some principles. And the first negative principle that we have to consider here... ...in terms of our understanding of this world, of nations, of governments, of kingdoms... ...and so on and so forth, is this. And this is the first point. That civil authority is currently under a temporary authority of Satan. That civil authority operates under the temporary authority of Satan, of the devil, of the evil one. Now, by way, as a reminder, we would remember that God has ultimate authority, of course. God alone is sovereign In the end, the ultimate truth regarding civil or human authority is that it's ordained by God. Because he's the only one who has authority in the entire universe. He's the only one that can give authority. None can give authority to God as if he needed anything from man. But he is the one who gives all things to men, including the authority for civil government, civil human authority. So all authority comes from God. Psalm 103, 19 says the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. So nothing is outside, of course, the sovereign hand of God. We looked at that very briefly last week. Nothing falls outside of his sovereign will and his sovereign purposes. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord to turn it wherever he wishes. And for time's sake, i had several examples we won't. Look at them, but the mere fact is is that no man is autonomous. Everyone is dependent on God for life and breath and for all things, and though fully responsible for decisions, is nonetheless under the sovereign direction of God. That's a mystery, that's sovereignty and human responsibility, and yet it is true. That's uh, it's an unassailable point for those who believe the testimony of Scripture. Scripture also reveals to us, not only is God sovereign, though, but that Satan has a limited at present authority. He has a limited present authority. Not only has God granted authority to human beings, to kings and to rulers, to nations, he has also granted a limited authority to the devil and to Satan to use to do his own evil biddings. Now, this is most clearly illustrated, or what would be the most common to us, uh, most likely, would, would be even in the book of Job. Where Job comes to God, he asks permission of God to wreak havoc on the life of Job. God ultimately grants Satan permission to affect his wealth, to affect his property, to affect his family, even to affect death and to affect the weather. All of these things were acted on by Satan himself or committed by Satan himself and yet under the sovereign direction of God. This kind of authority that has been loaned, as it were, to Satan extends beyond just his involvement in God's servants and the testing of God's servants, as in the case of Job, but even to his influence on rulers, leaders, and nations. Now let me just very, very, very briefly illustrate this in a few ways. The first are two really key passages in the Old Testament. One is in Isaiah 14. We're not going to spend much time on these. Again, for time's sake, I'm going to have to be very broad. I'm just going to do a little more than mention it. But one is in Isaiah 14 and the other is in Ezekiel 28. In Isaiah 14, the God through the prophet Isaiah by divine inspiration is speaking to the king of Babylon. He's speaking to the ruler of the Babylonian Empire. It's very possible here he's speaking even beyond the tip, the, that historical Babylonian Empire to the ultimate expression of that at the end of days mentioned in the book of Revelation. But nonetheless, he speaks to the king of Babylon. And he says in verse 4 that this is against the king of Babylon of Isaiah 14. How the oppressor has ceased, how his fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, Which used to strike the peoples in fury and unceasing strokes. Which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. And he goes on and he speaks and he describes the kind of rule of this king of Babylon. And then he says in verse 11, he makes a a shift where he begins to make a shift. He says, Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to shale. Maggots are spread out as beneath you, and worms your covering. Then he says, excuse me, in verse 12, he makes the shift. He says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you have been weakened, you who have weakened the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most high, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to shield to the right recesses of the pit. Now, in an interesting play here, what is happening is that God, through the prophet Isaiah, is addressing a human king. And yet, he has, in that short span of this address to the king, moved beyond merely the human realm to pierce through the human individual and address the spiritual power behind him. And here in verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn, actually, interestingly, is a passage referenced by Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4, I believe it is, or Luke chapter 10, excuse me, Luke chapter 10, to refer to Satan's fall from heaven. To refer from the demise of Satan, from his original position, cast out of heaven. In, in all likelihood, that is exactly what is be, or who is being referenced here. That the prophet Isaiah is though addressing the human king, is looking behind him to the satanic power. And this address equally applies not only to the earthly king, but the satanic Satan and who is behind him. Whose heart of pride is, is reflected in the heart of pride Of this human king. And that's again not something that's unfamiliar to us in scripture. You can remember even speaking to one of his own. Jesus said to Peter when he was being influenced by Satan. What? Get behind me Satan. Addressing Peter but looking through Peter to the power and the force that was behind him. Namely Satan. The evil one. As a matter of fact I think uh, in John 13.27 that's precisely what's going on with Judas. Judas. When he speaks to Judas, right before that, uh, Jesus says these words. It says that Satan entered into him. And then Jesus says to Judas, what you do, go do quickly. Referring to the man Judas, but no doubt also to the satanic presence that was in him. And so that's very similar to what we have going on here. I would hold in Isaiah 14. Those are, of course passages of a lot of discussion. The same thing is happening in Ezekiel chapter 28 here addressing not the king of Babylon but the king of Tyre. Again and now in these in these times uh, you'll remember or if you don't here's uh, new information that the Spiritual power was associated very closely to temporal power, to the king. Very often worshipped as a god, said to be a manifestation of the gods or the gods of that nation who was ruling over them. That's why if you read through the Old Testament, you'll say when they were in battle with these other nations, it really wasn't a matter of which nation was stronger, it was whose god was stronger. And so for Israel to be defeated was really to say the God of the Assyrians was stronger. As a matter of fact, when the king of Babylon comes to taunt Israel, he taunts them and says, well, whose other God, what other nation had a God that was strong enough to defeat me? Don't trust in your God. Your God isn't any stronger. And so that's part of what is being reflected here in these words. And so he is speaking here to the king of Tyre, but also to the satanic power behind him. It says to the leader of Tyre, verse Ezekiel twenty eight one, thus says the Lord, because your heart is lifted up, and you said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. And again he continues this taunt, and then he makes a shift again, as similar to Isaiah fourteen in verse eleven. And again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, and the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared... You were the anointed cherub who covers and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones with fire. You were blameless in your ways from the days you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Language here that cannot be applied even within the ancient Near East context merely to the human king. Looking behind him, piercing through him as it were to the power behind him, namely Satan. Satan and make this clear in another way same ideas in Daniel chapter 10 Daniel had play, uh, prayed he had received a vision he was praying for understanding an angel was sent to him to give him understanding an angel sent by the Lord and that angel when he came to Daniel said this O so Daniel man of high esteem understand the words I'm about to tell you Uh, He goes on, he says, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand this, and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words, verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days, and behold, Michael, who is an angel, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia." Persia. They're identifying Daniel is, even in this angel's response to him that there are spiritual forces and powers in the heavenly places that are behind the earthly rulers and the kings. Things are not always as they seem. And this kind of satanic influence, not only we mentioned with Peter, can happen even to God's kings. Again, just note these references. In 2 Samuel 24.1 and 2 Chronicles 21, one, we have an instance where the anger of the Lord was incited against Israel and David numbered the people. He did an act forbidden by God. It was an act by which God would bring judgment to the nation of Israel. And so we have that happening as a means of God's anger in 2 Samuel 24. In 1 Chronicles 21, it says that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to number the people. David was, by God's own sovereign providence and judgment... Being influenced by Satan in a way that would ultimately bring judgment on God's people. Jesus himself acknowledged this kind of authority, this role of Satan. passage you're well familiar with, Matthew chapter 4. He says this, when the devil was tempting Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry... Verse 8 says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This is nations and kings and powers, all civic authority, if you will, of the world. And he said to him, all these, Satan said to Jesus, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And of course, Jesus did not argue with him because, in fact, it was right for Satan to offer that. Satan had that authority over the kingdoms. It was a legitimate offer. And it exposed the true intent of Satan... ...in wanting the worship that belongs to God alone. And again, this same fact is affirmed by all of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is called the god of this world. Ephesians 2.2, 2, the prince of the power of the ruler of the air. 1 John 5.19, we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one... Colossians 1.13, that we were delivered from the domain or the authority or power, all good translations, of darkness. In Acts 26.18, this was the commission to the Apostle Paul that he gave testimony to that the gospel that he preached was to turn men from the power, the authority of Satan, to God. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, it's not merely a human matter, that there is a satanic force, there is a power of darkness that is operative, alive and well and working within the realm of humanity led by Satan. Again, this present darkness is illustrated in the events of Jesus' passion which culminated in his crucifixion which was under the influence of satanic forces. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in Luke 22 as they came to take him away in the garden he told his apostles not to fight, not to resist. Why? Because this hour is that which belongs to the power of darkness. What's happening is under God's sovereign control and that moment, those moments of his crucifixion have been handed over to the authority of Satan to do as he desired. Which ultimately ended in the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ. So this is the testimony that scripture gives to us. As a matter of fact, it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, which we'll come to later... Peter reminds us that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Seeking someone to devour. That's how it works. How is that devouring happening? Well, he says in verse 9 of 1 Peter 5, For your brethren around the world are experiencing the same kind of suffering, the same suffering that you are. In other words... Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion. Exercising his vengeance through the suffering that he brings on the people of God. That he brings on the church. How is that suffering coming? Not merely by the malignment that comes from the culture. But by the civil authority that ordains and commands the kind of persecution that many of these believers were suffering. So again, more implicit there. But identifying Satan's role behind human government and human system. As the final expression of this rule in this kingdom is the kingdom of the Antichrist. That's why we read Revelation 20 this morning. First John tells us that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world and influences both religious doctrine and political systems. And the final kingdom of the Antichrist will be both religious and political. And might I remind us, as part of why we're going over this, which we'll wrap up in just a sec, Is that if we believe the word of God. And if we believe that scripture is true. That it is God's word given to us. And that it's true in all of its parts. And in every way. Then we have to understand this is the end of human civil authority. This is where it's headed. Revelation 13 marks a a shift in the book of of Revelation. Identifying this rise of the antichrist his governmental system and so forth. Again, we're not going to spend any time on these, but let me just read a few verses. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and his horns were ten, on his horns were ten diadems, and his heads were blasphemous names. That speaks of authority. It's pulling off of the imagery of Daniel. In fact, the book of Daniel... In which he is identifying the rise and the fall and the eventual complete fall of world kingdoms, successive world kingdoms that were to come after Daniel, Greece, Media Persia, Babylon, and Rome. And so here, those kind of kingdoms are being, or that kind of authority. Is what's being imaged here. Verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. And we have in this passage the unholy trinity. You have Satan who is a mirror of the ultimate authority of the father. You have the antichrist who is the mirror of the son and his political authority. And the false prophet who is a mirror of the Holy Spirit. Giving this sort of religious and spiritual authority ...to the Antichrist. And so there is this blend... ...and this mixture of political power... ...under the hands of an evil ruler... ...strengthened and enabled... ...by the hands of an evil... ...and apostate church and religious leader. Now again, we could spend a lot of time on that... ...but that that is where things are heading. Now why is that important for us... ...in this context to note... ...this reason and this reason primarily... Christians should not have an over-idealized view of the possibilities under civil authority, human civil authority. Christians should not have an, an idealized view of the possibilities of any present human government. In other words, our hope is never in any human system. It never could be. That would be impossible. To hold that in our hearts is to deny the doctrine of sin and the ultimate end to which all things are headed. That's not a light issue. We've had years and hundreds and thousands of millions of dollars of Christian resources for years spent on the agenda of the religious right, which ended up failing. Now, I'll mention something about that. It's not to say, and this will come later, that we aren't to be influential and have a part In human government, it is to say that if we understand the ultimate end of all human authority, the system and the rise of the Antichrist, its final destruction by Christ upon his return, then there is no way that our allegiance or our hope should ever veer from anything other than the gospel and be placed on any kind of human government and human authority as the answer to the problems of our society and the problems of our woes. The woes of our society. The central problem and issue facing any culture is this. Not a government system. It is the wicked and sinful, rebellious heart of man. That is the issue. That's always the primary issue. Um, I'm going to have to go really fast here. But let me just mention this to you. March seven. That which proceeds out of the man, that which defiles the man from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things proceed from within and defile the man. What is his point? Here speaking, of course, to religious leaders, but his point is that you, by external stipulations and external laws, be they religious or secular, cannot affect the heart of man. Never could. You can regulate sin. You can sort of box it in a little bit and fence it by laws and punishment and those kind of things and cultural norms, etc. But you can never address the key issue. Never. By mere external laws. That can only come from the gospel. That can only come from faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that yields a man and brings them into submission under Christ's lordship as it is ministered through his word and through the church. That is the only way that ultimately society can be made better. And that's the only way real change can come. Civil government and human authority, even under the most fortuitous circumstances and moral influences, will fall and will fail eventually. Sin will always have the greatest sway and the kingdom of Satan will always rise, eventually increasing until it wreaks havoc on on the whole of earth and is destroyed by Christ. That's a biblical worldview. That's the first point. I'll go a little quicker here. What about the Christian's obedience or responsibility to submit within a wicked world system? So this point is civil authority and Christian disobedience. By the influence of Satan and conditions of the fall, of course, man is always seeking to usurp God's authority. That's the very nature of sin is to not live under the authority of God and establish an autonomous authority in our minds anyway, not in reality. That seeks to live separate from God's laws. Because that is the nature of sin. Because that is the case until Christ returns. It is inevitable that human authority is at points in history. And at certain points in terms of morality. Going to seek to try to force those things that are directly against the authority of God and his commandments. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. When that happens. The Christian is... To obey God and not to obey man. Government has at that point overstepped its bounds of the authority given to it by God and is no longer to be submitted to it. Ultimately our obedience is to God. So civil authority is to be obeyed up to the point it requires, legislates or mandates sin or any violation of God's commandment. And this refers to direct actions of sin, not participation in sinful systems that support unrighteousness. And that's a very important distinction. You're never going to find a completely righteous government. That's not that you're not going to find that. We are to live under even an unrighteous government in as much as we are not required to sin against God directly. Now again, I'm just going to reference this, but Jeremiah 29 provides a really wonderful illustration of this. God is sending his people into exile because of their sin. He sent the nation of Syria against the northern tribes to destroy them to destroy Samaria, their capital, to carry them off into exile. Later, he sends the king of Babylon down to the southern tribes, ultimately to carry them off into exile, to destroy Jerusalem it lay in ruins, and to take them captive to a foreign land. What are they to do, particularly the Jews that are taken off into exile, and really even those who were left into the land? Well, Jeremiah deals with that extensively. Here in chapter 29, what is God's instruction to them? Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 4, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters. And multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare and you will have welfare. That's God's instruction. So how are we to live under an unrighteous system? We're to live as good citizens. Good citizens, because God has placed us there. We're not to live as political revolutionaries. As a matter of fact, as you read through Jeremiah, that's what some did within Israel who refused to submit to the rule of the Babylonians. They ended up going down to Egypt and that whole faction destroyed by God, as he said would happen. Whereas they could have been blessed if they would have lived under the rule of Babylon. Until the time of God's judgment was finished. However, at this point, when civil authority oversteps its bounds and legislates disobedience, Acts 5.28, you tell us, are we to obey God or man? And the Many modern examples of that would be, I mean, you could add to this list, underground churches who defy the law of the land not to gather together to worship Well, we as Christians could never do that. God commands us to worship. God commands us to meet for prayer. God commands his word to be preached to his people. So in as much as laws would forbid us to do that, we would ignore those laws as God's people have uh, and do. Smuggling Bibles. Would that be lying and deceitful to smuggle Bibles into a nation that forbids them? Well, some would say yes. Um, That is an unrighteous law. I would say no, we should do that. The word of God should be in the hands of as many people as we can get it into. And if that means hiding them in a suitcase to go through a border so they won't be detected and they can be distributed among the culture, then all the more power. Pray that God would keep them hidden. Many examples of that. How about those who are in hospitals who would be required to participate in abortions? Well, those Christians simply can't do that. And whatever consequences come, they will not obey that if it comes down from the president or the king himself. What about affirming homosexual marriage and saying that you have to legitimize that as much as any heterosexual marriage and use your church facilities to that end? Well, at that point, we have to say no. No, not disrespectfully, not out of anger, but simply no. That is to defy God's law, to defy God's authority. To buy, defy God's created order. And so again, these could go on and on. What it does not mean is this, however. Our disobedience. It, does, it also includes, let me add this. It also includes using the laws of the land in a proper way. Using the laws of the land in a proper way. And I want to just say this briefly. Uh, we won't turn there, Acts 22, Paul was taken, he was beaten, he, or he was stretched out to be beaten in stripes, and then he says to the one who was going to hit him, are you going to hit or strike a Roman citizen without due process? He pulled the law. That was his trump card. Is This is a, a Roman citizen. You have no legal right to do this. And of course, they let him go. When the when he was in Macedonia and he was taken away and charged and put into prison wrongly and then they realized he was a Roman citizen and they wanted to just have him leave quietly Paul said no you bring the authorities here and tell them publicly to apologize they broke the law there is a right use of the law that we are to exercise as a matter of fact uh, there are of course organizations raised up to protect Christians in that way Alliance Defending Freedom is one of them. This is one of the examples uh, from their website. Kelvin Cochran, Kelvin Cochran, Fire Chief, City of Atlanta, targeted, was targeted for writing a Christian book off hours that upheld biblical sexuality. He was defended. They tried to take away from him some of his freedom, some of the pension and other things, his job. A quote from that site says this. A federal court ruled that the city suspended and terminated Chief Cochran because he did not get permission from the city to write the book. A requirement that the court found to be an unconstitutional uh, error prior restraint on speech. An unconstitutional restraint on speech. Government cannot require a permission slip for its employees to write on important matters like faith and values in their off time. Thankfully, this organization came in and said that is a violation of the law's We need to fight against that. We need to defend them. And that's right to do. That's certainly right to do. But it is inevitable that eventually these rights will be violated. And Christians, as they are in other lands, will be persecuted. They will be persecuted under God's providence. What are we to do? Are we to form societies, militias? Groups to overthrow this unrighteous government? No. We are, after all, reasonable resources have been exhausted to submit to the persecution and bear witness to Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 10, you are going to be drawn and taken before kings and rulers. Don't worry about what you say. The Spirit of my Father will give you what you are to say in that hour. You are there to bear testimony Before Paul appealed to Caesar, God had previously revealed to him that you are going to go to Rome and bear witness to me. And he did before Nero. Tyndale was burned at the stake for putting the English into or the Bible into English. He prayed as he was being burned, opened the king of England's eyes. Luther stood before the arrayed might and authority, both civil and religious at the time, and says, I'm bound to the word of God. To violate either scripture or my conscience is neither right nor safe. You know, do to me what you will. He stood in the word of God, even if that was going to bring him persecution. And so we accept that. We accept that. We need to and bear witness to God. Realizing God is the ultimate avenger of his people. Now I want to note this. There is a distinction between civil obedience or civil disobedience where human authority oversteps its bounds and tries to regulate sin and the justification for revolution. Jesus did not come for bringing about political change nor did he address the political system of Rome in any way that encouraged rebellion or revolution. That was never a serious issue through the history of the church. That came later. Rebellion and revolution was not... What Jesus encouraged or taught. Although he did address the spiritual character of earthly leaders in the Gospels, saying they wield their authority for selfish reasons, he disregarded the threats of rulers for Herod, for example, who wanted to put him to death. He said, Go tell that fox I work as long as it's day, now, today, and tomorrow, until I achieve my end. In Luke chapter 13. But he also taught submission to government's rightful authority to tax its citizens. Even for an unrighteous government. He told his people. To not rebel against even unrighteous. Laws and stipulations that allowed a Roman soldier to force a Jew to stop his work. And walk with him and carry his stuff. Jesus said go two miles not one. That's the attitude that he commanded. This. Jesus' unwillingness to encourage political rebellion was likely the human reason for Judas's rejection of Jesus. Dismayed and disappointed upon his entrance into Jerusalem, seeing that it was not going to be a political overthrow of Rome, was, dis, was disenchanted or is dis, realized he was disillusioned with Jesus and rejected him and turned him over to the leaders. It was very likely the human reason. And Jesus himself acknowledged the religious authority, even of the Jewish system that he excoriated, and he would shortly after this. In Matthew 23, he says, they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses, therefore do as they tell you. And then he went for the rest of the chapter and explained how they were hypocrites and going to be judged by God. But he acknowledged their human authority. Jesus acknowledged Pilate's authority as he stood on unrighteous charges that Pilate himself knew were unrighteous and submitted himself to the authority that had been given to him by God and ultimately gave himself up. And this can go on and on. So Jesus yielded to the authority of human government as a demonstration of his submission to the authority of the Father. This obedience to the Father included submitting to the suffering of the cross under the wrongful charges, sinful motives, and the sentence of death. He submitted to the Father out of trust, understanding the temporary nature of this injustice to accomplish ultimately God's just purposes. We'll look at that beginning in verse 21. So Jesus commands us to honor our leaders even when they are ungodly. Thirdly, so there is a time for civil disobedience and that is only when the commands of government would require us to sin against God. Thirdly, civil authority and Christian involvement. Civil authority and Christian involvement. If human authority is under the influence of Satan, civil government cannot change the heart, and if all human authority will be destroyed, then should Christians be involved with civil government and civil authority and politics at all? Should we be involved at all in these kind of enterprises? The short answer to that is yes, absolutely. Christian involvement and influence is consistent with the purposes of government. Remember what he said. It is to the punishment of those who do evil and the praise of those who do right. That recalls for a morally discerning law. It rec- calls for moral discernment. And where is that going to come? Other, Ultimately, there's common grace. I'll mention that. But if Christians have an opportunity to influence the moral clarity of any kind of government, then they should do that. That is consistent with the purpose of God. And it is a justice that is used by God within human systems for human flourishing and the protection of the gospel. I mentioned that last week. It is an aspect, a facet, or dimension of Jesus' statement that God's people are salt and light on the earth. Salt in the preserving influence of the decay the moral decay and the spiritual corruption of man and light a revealer of truth and a help to the conscience of any nation a revealer of the, to the conscience of truth to the conscience of any nation the question of the church's involvement with political structure and secular authority has been an ongoing discussion particularly since the time of constantine in the fourth century let me just give you one quote of one author the advent of what we have come to call Constantinianism, in which a political regime uses its power and privilege to privilege Christianity and intercede in matters of the Christian faith ushered in almost 1500 years of experimentation as different relationships between church and state were tried in various forms of Christendom. So particularly after this Supposed change that Constantine had in the 4th century and the authority of the state became wedded with religious authority and religious influence. There's been a back and forth, a good and bad, mostly bad from the history of the church ever since then. And a lot of experimentation and a lot of different understandings on what that relationship is to look like. I could just say this as a general statement. Whenever political and secular authority has been intermingled with direct religious authority, not simply religious influence, but religious authority, the results have not been good in the whole. In the whole. So then how are Christians to be involved? First, we already read part of this, we are to pray for our government, local, state, and federal. We are commanded by God to seek his favor for the nations in which we live. I already read Jeremiah 29 to you, First Timothy. This uh, instruction is picked up by the Apostle Paul. First Timothy chapter two. First of all, as, as of importance, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority in it, so that we may lead tranquil and quiet life, lives in all godliness and dignity. He goes on to say this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. While it is true that part of the intent of that statement of the apostle is that we would pray for wise rulers that would promote a political stability and protection and fair laws of civil authority that would allow for greater freedom in proclaiming the gospel and living quiet lives free from fear. Creating an environment for Christian and human flourishing. That is certainly part of it. Although his primary point here and motivation behind that is this. That we are to understand God's desire for all to be saved. Even ungodly kings and rulers and the churches to pray for them. Live godly lives that adorn the gospels and demonstrate that the emphasis and the motivation of us as the people of God is not rebellion and overthrow. But... Eternal purposes, the soul of men. The forgiveness of the sin of men through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. One author has said on that verse, Although we may hate the evil world system that is the enemy of God, we are not to see those in it as our personal enemies. They are captives of the real enemy. They are not our enemies. They are the mission field. If the church today took the time and energy it spent... ...on political maneuvering and lobbying and put them into intercessory prayer, we might see a profound impact on our nation. End quote. I won't read this, but, well, I'll read part of it. Tertullian, in an apology in the second century, quote, mentioning that verse, says this. Do you think then, do you then who think that we care nothing for the welfare of Caesar, looking... Uh, for God's revelations, examining in our sacred books, which we do not keep in hiding, and which many accidents put into the hands of those who are not of us—in other words, this is well known Christian teaching. Learn from them that a large benevolence is enjoined upon us even so far as to supplicate God for our enemies and to beseech blessing on our persecutors. The scripture says, pray for kings and rulers and powers that all may be at peace with you. For when there is a disturbance in the empires, if the commotion is felt by its other members, surely we too, though we are not thought to be given to disorder, are to be found in some places or other which the calamity affects. Essentially saying this. If wickedness comes to a nation and brings about havoc and destruction, it affects the Christians in that nation as much as anybody else. Therefore, we should pray for the protection of that nation that secures our freedoms. So the first level of involvement of the church with civil authority should be understood as being spiritual. That this is spiritual battle and we should pray for our leaders. We should make it a clear demonstration that our goal as a church is to live godly lives not foster rebellion or revolution. Second, though, we do as Christians have the responsibility to influence policies, hold public leaders accountable, and to be enjoined with public office whenever possible to influence justice in our culture and society. Christians who are called and have the opportunity to serve in politics and government should exert as much influence on policy as possible. Proverbs 28 5 says this evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. Comment on that verse one it said moral discernment is jaded by their own evil and rebellion against divine authority. Man, do we see that before us every day now. The parallelism in that proverb. ...suggest everything relative to an obligation such as taking care of the poor. Intellectual clarity and moral discernment hinge on religious attitude toward God. The pious find their abilities to distinguish good from evil and right from wrong... ...and to proceed with equity by seeking the Lord through His revelation. In other words... Christians, above all the people on the earth, have a moral clarity and discernment about what is right and wrong and just and unjust. And therefore, more than anybody, should be a major influence on the laws of the land that would uphold that, supposedly, what is just and what is right. Would you want, in leadership, only evil men who do not understand justice? Who do not fear God? Speaking of favoritism in the church, the writer of James says this in chapter 2. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? If evil motives of self-serving favoritism can infiltrate the church, how much more will hypocrisy and self-serving motives infiltrate the political systems of this world with this carnal lust for power? And therefore, by that lust, be blinded to what is just and right. And morally true. And good for everybody. It will be influenced only by self-serving means. Again I think we see this. Just think of those who would base policy decisions. Not on what is true. Or not on what is right. Or not on what is in the best interest of human flourishing. But rather their hold on power. What level of moral muddiness and rationalization can foster in that kind of spiritual climate. Well, we're seeing that, aren't we? We do not want evil people who don't understand justice being the only ones in charge of the law. We want those with moral clarity and discernment. And while there is a common grace that extends that to many in general it is for believers who all the more have the benefit of the indwelling Holy Spirit to lead, to give understanding and to establish convictions on more than preference but grounded in the unshakable foundation of scripture and a conscience that is bound to it. Yes, we want Christians in government. Yes, we want Christians in public office. Absolutely. That's that's for the good of man. It's for our good as well as the good of all men. It's a part of love for neighbor. We want those who have convictions that are consistent with righteousness. Those who are regenerate believers. Those who would pray with Solomon in 1 Kings three nine. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. So we should pray. We should be involved as much as we can. Just think of what kind of Changes in our society we could have been protected from. If the church would have had more influence in legislating bodies when making decisions on no-fault divorce, abortion, homosexual marriage. And many other things that have a devastating effect on our society and our culture's stability. Through the destruction supported in the very concept, destruction to the very concept of family and human life itself. So yes, Christians should be involved. Well, we're going to leave it there. Maybe we'll pick it up at another point. The last point was this, and I'll just mention it as a segue to the Lord's table. Civil authority in the kingdom of God. We as Christians live under civil authority now. We should influence it as much as we can. Ultimately, our influence is through our faithfulness to the gospel as we live in this culture. But we ultimately wait and have our hope in the coming kingdom of Christ and his establishment of it on the earth. That is the kingdom we long for. And might I add, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to be demonstrating that kingdom here, partly in our obedience to Christ. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice justice. And righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord, the host, will accomplish it. That is the kingdom of Christ, and that is what we long for. Well, let me pray as we now take some time to come to the Lord's table, which is a reminder of that very kingdom that is to come. And is a reminder of the cost of that kingdom, namely the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf as an atonement for sin. So as Kathleen, let me pray. The men will come forward and then Kathleen will play play, and uh, the men will hand out the elements. Father, thank you for your word. Give us again clarity of thinking as there are so many ways that we have to apply this truth in different situations that aren't always black and white. Give us a clarity of thinking. Help us to be always seekers of you through your word our conscience bound by honoring you and obeying you and not self-seeking. And so help us to do that and in that endeavor. And again, as we prayed earlier, help us to be courageous. Help us to be strong and to live faithful to you, whatever the cost. And we ask these things in your name, Jesus, amen.